as the children are being dismissed, I'm just going to encourage you to stand and maybe turn around and invite the person behind you to Tim Hortons. Let's greet one another. Well, now that we've all made our lunch plans, we can sit back and relax for the message. Before I get into the message, though, you saw that little clip there from the uh, Reframe series. And interestingly, just this uh, week, I was talking to somebody who travels uh, quite a lot globally. And I had mentioned to them that I was taking some classes at Regent and that I started these a couple of weeks ago. And he said to me, Regent, he said, you know, that school is one of the most well-known and renowned seminaries around the world. And I was thinking, wow, Regent Seminary, which is on our UBC campus, is literally right down the street from us. Yeah, I know we've got to navigate some traffic and all that, but we have such an opportunity to grow in our faith with a school like that, so renowned, some of the top professors in the world and writers, one of the best theological bookstores is there, and it's just right down the street from us. Uh, the Reframe series that is going to be starting on September the 30th in the Adult Sunday School class is a series that's put out by Region on integrating faith and work. How do we integrate our faith with the area in which we work, or our hobbies, or even our family life? Because sometimes we have a compartmentalized faith. We have sort of a Sunday faith, and maybe it's a private faith, but we struggle with how do we integrate that faith in the everyday world in which we work. And so that's what that series is going to be on uh, both Daniel Lopez and uh, Leona Weeb are going to be hosting that, and we just want to really encourage a lot of people to come out to that. Now, speaking of Regent, you may also notice in your bulletin, Regent has free public lectures that they offer to the community and to churches, and I really want to encourage uh, you to look at taking in some of those. For instance, this coming Tuesday and Wednesday night, um, they have one of the best minds in the Christian world right now, Alistair McGrath. Alistair McGrath has a PhD in biophysics as well as a PhD in theology, and he's a professor at Oxford. And he's here at Regent, and he's going to be giving two talks, one on in, uh, the, the sometimes seemingly tension between science and faith. He's going to be giving that talk on Tuesday night. Nancy and I and some other people we know are going to that. And then on Wednesday night, he's going to be addressing some of the issues with the new atheism with Richard Dawkins, who uh, Alistair McGrath has debated with and that. Uh, and so I just encourage you, if you could take one of those evenings in, um, you're getting one of the top minds uh, speaking right here just uh, in our own uh, our city here. And so just if you can take that, that'd be great. Uh, I do think that they may be also on the website, and so you can kind of navigate the Regent website. They, if you can't make it there, they may be live streaming the, the uh, lectures too. So you can check on the website and see if at that time it's being live streamed. Now, before we proceed, I am going to invite our church board up on stage at this time. Uh, these are the men and women at the church here that are your spiritual leaders and are your governance board, the board that you elected just a couple of months ago. And 
I just want to have them all up here so I can introduce them to you. This weekend, we had Larry Nelson, a consultant that we brought in because we have started a new board structure, a governance board structure. And we had th this group here, eight hours of training uh, the last uh, two days, two hours on Friday night and then six hours yesterday on board governance training. And we actually had a lot of fun, didn't we? The right answer is yes, yep, good. No, it was really, uh, really good trying to help us understand board governance and that. And so these are the men and women. One of the things that we committed to is to praying for you each day as a board and as a congregation. And so um, I want to pray a dedication over them, and I want to encourage you to be praying for your church board as we continue to look into the future and to look at what God has for us and our vision for Bethany Baptist. So... Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the dedication of the men and women here on stage. Uh, Lord, they have been chosen because of their character, because they exhibit a godly leadership. They have gifts of administration and oversight, and they have wisdom, Lord, and they have lots of different perspectives. I thank you, God, for the camaraderie, and I thank you, Lord, for the friendship, and I thank you, Lord, for how much I feel so invigorated when I sit around the table with these people, and how it is just such a positive environment to be in. And I pray, Lord, that we will continue to lead with that positivity and with that joy, and that we will nurture our own relationship with you as we lead others. Lord, give them courage, give them strength, and we pray as a congregation to stand with them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, we are talking about leaders in the Old Testament in this um, last number of sermons that we have been doing, looking at different kings in the Old Testament. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we sing on Sunday mornings a lot of things that are probably lies. Um, I know that it is really our heart's intent, but if we were to examine where our life's actually at, we would have to admit that we sing a lot of lies. And that if we were to change some of our hymns to the truth and the reality of where our life is at, we would probably have to sing songs like, Oh, How I Like Jesus. Or I Surrender Some. I love to talk about telling the story. And take my life and let me be. Or what we started off the sermon, or the service with, and I didn't have Derek change the words, to fill up my spoon, Lord, uh, and we sang fill up my cup. But this morning, I want to look at an individual in the Bible who lived a life that was much more than fill up my spoon. He really lived a life of saying, God, fill up my cup. And what's amazing about this story and about this man is how early this started in his life in an environment in which everything seemed to be not in favor of him going in this direction. About 640 years before Jesus came to this world, a boy by the name of Josiah came to the throne in Jerusalem. And Josiah, my son, this sermon is not all about you, I'm sorry, but this is the king that we named our firstborn son after. 
And I do say a boy, because when Josiah became king, he was only eight years old. Now, when I think back to when I was eight years old, I believed I was a king also. Uh, I used to make my younger brother bow down before me and try to wear cheap jewelry around my neck and necklace, like necklaces and have chairs, um, but that didn't last very long. I remember even buying a bunch of um, old washers from this uh, department store that was sort of close by where we lived, and I used them as gold coins. I kind of painted them up in that. But I wasn't really a king. Josiah, however, was a real king by the age of eight. Josiah's father was Ammon, who was an ungodly king, and after only two years of ruling, was assassinated by people in his own inner court. And you always know that if you are assassinated after two years of reigning, you're probably not very popular. So Josiah comes to the throne at eight years old. His father was an ungodly man. His father was an unpopular man. And his father was simply assassinated to be put out of the way. But unlike his father, the description that we get of Josiah is this. Josiah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. And followed the example of his ancestor, David. And he did not turn aside from doing what was right. In the eighth year of Josiah's reign, so if he started at eight years old, in the eighth year of his reign, making him 16, he began seeking the God of his father, David. So as a 16-year-old, Josiah showed more maturity than, remember, Rehoboam who came to the throne at 41 years of age, and we heard that he was young and inexperienced, and also we saw him as a very foolish king. Age, again, is fairly relative in regards to maturity. By the time Josiah was a 16-year-old teenager, he had decided that he was putting God first in his life. It's a decision that we can make. I encourage our own disciple or our own uh, teenagers, our own young people, that it, you don't have to wait until you're an adult. At 16 years old, Josiah said, from here on in, God is number one in my life. I'm going to follow the Lord. Even maybe some of you, like Josiah, had a very ungodly father or ungodly parents. It didn't matter. Josiah said, I'm not going to go the way of my father. That healthy rebellion again. I am going to rebel against the wickedness of my father and follow the one true God. In Josiah, we find such an encouragement to those who are young, who those who are still deciding where they're going to place their allegiance, and to see that already at 16 he had made that decision. We're not doomed to repeat the sins of our parents. We can make a difference, and we could change. In 2 Chronicles 34, we then read about this young Josiah. 2 Chronicles 34, verse 3, during the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David Then in the twelfth year of his reign, so now putting him at twenty, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, and the carved idols and cast images. 
He ordered that the altars of Baal be demolished and that the incense altars which stood above them be broken down. He also made sure that the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and the cast images were smashed and shattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the pagan priests on their own altars and so purified Judah and Jerusalem. This is a man who is making a passionate, bold decision to be a follower of God and trying to call his people, the people that he is ruling over, to follow this God as well. And as the people watch this now 20-year-old, still very young king, grieving over the sin of the land, his love for God continued to cause Josiah to reform. They would have witnessed his repentance, his fervor, and his desire for reform. Josiah loved what God loved and hated what God hated, as we talked about last week. He was not able to turn the blind eye to sin. He wasn't able to uh, just look at those things and say, oh, those don't really harm anybody. Whether it was money or success or work or sex or uh, power or family or kids or sports or religion or education, Josiah understood the danger of all things if we begin to make them idols. If we begin to make those the things that we live for. And so Josiah determined to let nothing rule his life but God. Many of those other things can become good things when we are ruled first by God, but when they rule us, they take over. They destroy us. And Josiah knew that. Josiah knew the destruction of sin and so was calling his people out of it because he loved God, which caused him also to love people. He did not want to see his people fall into the consequences of wrong beliefs and actions. Because incorrect beliefs do leave, lead to destructive living. And destructive living leads to a breakdown of society. And as King Josiah knew this, he couldn't ignore this. See, one of the major problems that the people in the Old Testament continually came up Against And we've heard these names several times in these sermons, Baal and Ashereth, were the false pagan religions that were around and were vying for the people of Judah's allegiance. Israel had already, the north, had already followed after these gods, and uh, by this time in the story, they have been destroyed. The Assyrians have come in, and they've wiped them out. And unfortunately, Judah is doing the same thing. They're following in the same path as Israel. Fortunately, they've had a few good kings that keep sort of bringing them back, but it seems that it doesn't take them very long to keep following in, following these false gods. Baal was considered the chief god in a pantheon of 70 other gods and goddesses. He was believed to be the one that controlled the heavens and the earth. He was the god of rain and storm 
and he was responsible for vegetation and fertility. Ashereth was the goddess who was married to another god by the name of El. El was considered the chief among the Canaanite deities and was often depicted as a bull. The people referred to him as Father Bull and regarded El as the creator of the world in which they lived in. And what you will see is that beliefs matter. It wasn't an available option for Josiah to say, well, just believe whoever you want to believe in. It doesn't really matter. We can all just get along in the end. Because Josiah knew that beliefs mattered. For instance, in connection with the cult of Baal and Asherah, it was encouraged by the priests to engage in many immoral sexual behaviors, including vast temple prostitution. So much so that in Eugene Peterson's message translation of the Bible, whenever he refers to the Baal and Ashereth cult in the Old Testament, he just simply translates it as the sex and religion shrines. Because essentially that's what they were. See, these were fertility religions. And so what they would do is they would have these ritualized sexual practices in the woods or in the temples with sacred prostitutes, and somehow this was to encourage the fertility of the land. That The more you engaged in these practices, the better the crops would grow, the more healthy children would be born to you, it would bring rain, it would get rid of famine. But the social ramifications for these kinds of rampant practices were devastating. Not only on the breakdown of family and relationships and trust factors, but the amount of diseases that were spread through all of this. In fact, one Old Testament scholar, Samuel Schultz, writes this of the Baal and Ashereth practices. The brutality and immorality in the the stories of these gods is far worse than anything found in the Near East. The Canaanites, in Josiah's day, practiced child sacrifice sacred prostitution, snake worship in their rites, and ceremonies associated with their religion. Naturally, their civilization degenerated under this demoralizing influence. And in another book just on archaeology, uh, this archaeologist points out that the Baal sites uh, have been found where boys and girls had their throats cut cut and burned at the foot of Baal to the sounds of flutes and tambourines before the eyes of their own parents. The sacrifice was called Molech. The victim's charred bones were then placed in urns. Professor Pickard estimates that in one area, some 70,000 children were sacrificed over a period of 700 years. That is almost 10 children per month. When we understand the background of some of this, it puts into perspective some of the commands in the Old Testament that seem rather harsh for us today. Why God at times asked his people to destroy some of these people groups. Understanding the background, it was because some of these people groups were so utterly wicked and terrible in their practices of child sacrifice and immorality that if left to continue on, they would destroy society. 
And God didn't want the rest of the nations around in Israel and Judah in particular to be sucked into these to essentially become self-annihilated by the practices that were encouraged. And because Josiah loved God and he loved the things that God loved and hated the things that God hated, Josiah knew that these kinds of practices destroyed people's lives. And he hated the things that destroyed people's lives. It wasn't because he was some moral legalist that just was trying to take the fun out of people's lives. It's because he cared about people and did not want them to practice things that were destructive. Even though, like today, many times the things that people practice that are destructive, they think are liberating. The same kind of justification is made today by many people trying to defend pornography as liberating and not really harming anyone. Where you don't have to dig very deep, not even in, if you want to say, biased Christian circles, you don't have to dig very deep just in general, many of the studies that have been done on pornography to see and to hear of the millions of lives that are continually destroyed by the exploitation, the addiction, the broken marriages, the poverty, the disease, the violence, the trauma, the revenge, the dehumanizing, the lies, the child abuse, the sex trafficking, the sexual dysfunction, the, um, the demeaning of women, and even murder that are the underbelly of this so-called liberating practice. And so why would God's people like God himself not say they hate those kinds of things? Not people struggling with it, not people that uh, sometimes are even pushing it. These are lost people that need to be shown truth, but the actual form of pornography is something that is so destructive that it should be hated by God's people. We may not have Baal and Ashereth shrines today, but we have X videos and Pornhub which leave behind similar tales of destruction. Josiah did not run away from these things. He did not hide away and say, oh, it's such a scary world out there. I can't deal with it. I just need to shut down. Instead, he believed that he needed to engage the world because he had the power and influence of God with him. And so he went in and began to engage culture. It stirred up in him a disgust for the kinds of things that destroy people's lives. And he tried to infiltrate those worlds to help save people out of them. He understood the proverb that said, Godliness makes a nation great, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And so by the 18th year, Josiah, 18th year of Josiah's reign, so now he's 26 years old, he began calling his people back by now repairing the temple. And that day, the temple was the center of where people came to worship God. Josiah knew that if you take away one thing from people to worship, you can't leave them in a vacuum. 
If people worship money, you can't just convince them that money is not something to completely live for and take that away and have them live in a complete vacuum because they will just find something else destructive to worship. It's like when Jesus talked about casting out one demon but not doing anything for the person to fill them with truth, then seven more just come back and possess them. And so Josiah knew that you can not only call people out of bad worship, but you needed to also direct them to true worship. And so as he went in his reform movement and began tearing down the Baal and the Asherah idols and shrines and, and calling people away from these false religions, he then moves to rebuilding the temple. Okay, don't worship that, but now come and worship the one true God. Come to the temple. You'll notice that many times the temple is being repaired. Because whenever the people fell away from God, they left the temple in disrepair. And an interesting pattern you'll find is that all these godly kings, all the good kings of Judah, almost every single one of them had on their agenda, restore the temple. And in doing so, Josiah understood that restoring people to the true faith is not the work that is simply done by pastors and theologians and monks and nuns. Maybe he took the refrain course. I don't know. But Josiah understood the integration of all walks of life into the faith. And so the writer here takes time to even list all the different types of people that Josiah employed in the rebuilding of the temple. It's not a throwaway line. It's not a, well, we just got a bit of extra space on our scroll, so let's write a list of a bunch of things. It's trying to make the point of the importance and the spiritual importance of all aspects of life. And so it says that in the rebuilding of the temple, he involved the ruler of the city, reporters, priests, supervisors, the royal historian, leaders, Carpenters, builders, stone cutters, musicians, secretaries, officials, gatekeepers, and then it even ends by saying, and many other trades, just in case we missed anybody. All of these things were important, godly work in the building of the temple. The priests just as much as the stone cutters. It was one of the things that Martin Luther and the Reformation reminded us of, the, the sacredness of all work, the holiness of all work. And then in the midst of building this temple, something fascinating happens. Verse 14, while they were bringing out the money collected at the Lord's temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that was written by Moses. Many scholars say that this probably was the book of Deuteronomy that he found. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan. Shaphan took the scroll to the king and reported, Your officials are doing everything they were assigned to do. The money that was collected at the temple of the Lord has been turned over to the supervisors and workmen. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. And Shaphan read it to the king. 
And when the king heard what was written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Now think about what the state of the temple must have been in. For the book of God to have gone missing. It would be like a church today so neglecting the Bible for so many years that we don't even have one anywhere around. And then one day the janitor or somebody is cleaning some back room somewhere and then all of a sudden dusts this book off and brings it to the pastor and says, I found this book called Holy Bible. And then the pastor says, interesting, read some of it to me. And he starts reading. I mean, that is the disrepair of the temple. On the one hand, it's amazing to recognize how much reform Josiah had already gone through without even having the book of the law. But then you may be surprised at his response. Dedicated to God at 16 by 20 beginning to deal with all the pagan, destructive religions in the land that were destroying people's lives. By the age of 26, beginning to now restore the temple to bring people back to God. After all of this that he has done, now he hears the word of God and he tears his clothes in repentance. And you might think to yourself, what does he have to repent for? He's been doing so good. But even though Josiah had already committed his life to God, already boldly stood up for truth, he models for us what it looks like to be someone who continues to grow. Not someone who's, I've already arrived, read the book of the law, checked that off, did that. When he hears the words of God, he tore his clothes in despair. He didn't even say, well, it's, it's not really my fault. I didn't have the book of the law. I didn't know all those things. No, he tore his robes in despair. All maturing Christians realize that the more you grow in Christ, the more you realize how far you still are from the holiness of God. And there's a certain maturity in that. That the more you grow, the more you realize that God is so much more. So much beyond. And so what Josiah models is not arrogance or not excuse making. He models a humble heart of repentance. And as a sign of repentance, he rips his clothes and then he asks the priests, intercede for me. Intercede. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me. And for all the remnant of Israel and Judah, he asks. Ask him about the words written in the scroll that has been found. The Lord's anger has been poured out against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the word of the Lord. We have not been doing what this scroll says we must do. Josiah's grief does not paralyze him, but it motivates him to repent. Hey guys, I can hear your conversation from here. 
Guys, I can hear your conversation from here. Thank you. It motivates Josiah to repent. He doesn't become self-absorbed and depressed. He doesn't allow this to make him think that God is so beyond me, there's no point in even engaging with God anymore. Instead, what Josiah does is he becomes outward focused and begins interceding for himself and for his people. Like the recovering alcoholic who knows that a significant part of recovery is reaching out and helping others for their sobriety. Recognizing that repentance involves helping others. And because of Josiah's repentance, God extends his mercy and forgiveness. Repentance leads to God's mercy and forgiveness. Josiah's life displays this from beginning to end. As he grew in his faith, we find that he continually repents. And that a growing faith in Jesus Christ is a life that continually repents. He followed God with all of his heart and soul, which is the greatest commandment. And then this is what we hear through one of God's female pastors in the Old Testament, a lady by the name of Huldah. She comes to Josiah and says, You were sorry you humbled yourself before God when you heard what I said against the city and its people. You humbled yourself and tore your clothes in despair and wept before me in repentance. And so I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. I will not send the promised disaster against the city and its people until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I am going to bring on this place. Josiah's repentance not only leads to God's forgiveness and mercy for him, it led to God's mercy on all the people. Because of your repentance, Josiah, the destruction that I promised on the land will not come until after your death. All the people, therefore, will be blessed and be protected under your covering. This is what it means to be the salt and light of the world. Because of your repentance, the rest of your people are protected because I will not send destruction. Josiah's love for God did not waver, that we then read. As long as he lived, his people did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. So the question comes, why do so many of us settle for fill up my spoon, Lord? Why? Why does that seem to happen? Why do so many people begin their Christian life or as their Christian life goes on, it ends up becoming a life no more than fill up my spoon? I think the answer, at least one of the key answers to this that we find in the life of Josiah is because for some strange reason there becomes an inability for us to be people who continually repent. It should be natural for the Christian. The natural response of the Christian should be one of continual repentance. 
should be a response of the Lord is God. I am a sinner saved by grace, but by the grace of God, there go I. Many of the saints in the past used to refer to themselves as the chief of sinners, which is kind of funny because they're all saying they're the chief of sinners, but that's how they felt. But yet we grow into this mentality of, I'm pretty good. And we start to look down on other people, especially those sort of ungodly people. And there begins to come in us a growing arrogance. It's the danger of the elder brother in the prodigal son story. It's the danger of a life of walking with Jesus without continual repentance. Walking with Jesus without continual repentance turns us into narrow-minded and arrogant, unforgiving people. Josiah, on the other hand, modeled a life of continual surrender, continual repentance, a continual recognizing that even if I'm growing this far, Lord, there is so much more where I fall short of you. Repentance leads to God's mercy and forgiveness. You want to experience a merciful God? A forgiving God, you need to be a repentant person. You want to experience a harsh God, a hard God, become a harsh person. Repentance has both individual and social ramifications. We must continually repent for both our individual sins and repent for our social sins that we either engage in or we neglect. Now, repentance doesn't mean walking around in a state of despair. Josiah didn't do that. He didn't walk around, oh, woe is me, I'm a horrible person, I repent. Oh, lashing himself and whipping himself like sometimes some people did. That's not repentance. In in, in fact, many ways, that's just very self-absorbed, navel-gazing, we can call that. It's not receiving God's forgiveness. See, repentance also is a receiving of God's forgiveness. So to walk around and be in despair and all that, that is not truly repenting. But we do walk around in a state of continual recovery. Like the alcoholic who recognizes that even though I have sobriety, I'm always an alcoholic. But not to demoralize them, but to motivate them to say, so because of that, I've got a mission. A mission to help others find sobriety. And in the same way, we come in repentance and continual repentance keeps us in constant diligence that, yes, I am a sinner saved by grace and I can keep falling down. And I need to keep repenting and keep coming before God and have that motivate me as I receive his forgiveness to bring the message of sobriety and forgiveness to other people. That they too can find forgiveness. See, the temple in the Old Testament, interestingly, I said in the Old Testament, all the kings, all the good kings that came, they all restored the temple. Well, when Jesus came, remember what Jesus did. He did the same thing. When the true king came, he cleansed the temple. In fact, he cleansed the temple to such an extent that his words even said, not only am I cleansing the temple, I'm abolishing the temple. 
Because a time's going to come and a time's going to come shortly where this temple thing is no longer needed. Because it was all merely a shadow. It was a picture all pointing to me. People are no longer going to worship in a temple here or there and all of that. Uh, these are just illustrations. The truth is that Jesus came to fulfill the temple. And now in many ways in New Testament understanding of things, the temple is both in here, in each of our hearts, and then the temple is also us corporately together. And if we look at what these godly kings did, epitomized in Jesus, is they had constant diligence in cleansing the temple. So what does that mean for us today? It means a constant diligence, not of cleansing a physical building somewhere, but it's the cleansing of the heart. It's, Lord, come in to your temple now, which is my heart, which is our community. Lord, come in and cleanse that temple again. Cleanse the temple. Keeping the temple of God clean, keeping our heart clean, is through constant repentance. Lord, you've come, you've cleansed the temple, and you keep on cleansing the temple. And if we neglect the temple, it, just like in the Old Testament times, it falls in disrepair. It begins to be eroded. It begins to even lose God's holy word. What happened in the Old Testament in illustrative ways is now happening in its true form in the fulfillment of Christ. Jesus' people are those who continually repair the temple of their heart through repentance that leads to God's mercy and forgiveness. And we allow the Scripture to not be lost in the temple, but we allow the Scripture to be written on our heart so it becomes central. We have the Scriptures impressed upon our children, talked about as we sit on the road and as we uh, uh, are at home and as we lie down and as we get up. Repentance is not a one-time act. One of the, the dangers of this accept Jesus into your heart kind of mentality is the emphasis on almost seeming like it's all about one decision you make. Certainly we do have to make a choice to follow Jesus or not. But if we reduce it all down to one decision, we end up having filthy temples. Repentance is the life of the Christian. It's the picking up the cross daily. And it's through continual repentance that we experience the mercy and forgiveness of God that we can extend to others. Jesus said at the end of one of his parables, I tell you, her sins are many. And they are many, and they have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who was forgiven little shows only little love. What Jesus is saying here is you want to know how to tell how deeply one has experienced God's forgiveness? It's by how much they love.
Not that God forgives some people little and some people more, but because some people are open through constant repentance to be forgiven much. And people like that love much. Whereas those very closed off that only allow themselves to be given, forgiven for very little tend to show very little love. They're harsh people. There's a grief that is godly and beneficial. Paul describes it this way. For the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. There's very good psychology in this too. Worldly sorrow, just wallowing in how lousy you are. It leads nowhere. It's unproductive. But godly sorrow, repentance, leads to salvation and away from sin. So may we grieve over our sin. May we repent and change our ways in accordance with God's ways on a regular basis. Many times to make it more tangible, the Bible encourages us to confess our sins to one another. We are to regularly confess our sins to one another. And may we experience God's mercy and forgiveness by being a people who continually repent and confess our sins and then allow the forgiveness of God to motivate us to love and forgive others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for men like Josiah that you have raised up in the Old Testament and showed us, modeled for us, a heart after you. And then ultimately, Lord, how though he was just a man, how you came to be the true Josiah. As Christ the King came, you fulfilled what all those Old Testament kings were merely and often poorly shadows of. You are the true King. You are the true temple. You are the true restorer of life. And Lord, we pray that we will not allow any other thing to become our Baal and our Ashereth. We pray that we will not allow the temple of our hearts to be eroded by false gods. But that every time it even a little bit goes in that direction, we will confess to you, we will confess to one another, and get our hearts right with you. So that we can experience your love and mercy and be people who extend love and mercy and forgiveness to others. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.